Welcome back to The Five Things This Week in Social. We're the podcast that makes sense of the social stories you've maybe heard rumblings about or were too embarrassed to ask about, or maybe you know exactly what we're talking about and you're just looking for a deeper look. In any case, you came to the right place. We are here for you. And who is the we I speak of? Well, first up, let's welcome back Gray Community Manager Ari Santana. And for the first time, we welcome Gray's Senior Community Manager, Kendall Pennington. Hello, Kendall. Hey, how's it going? I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So I'm curious, what is a trend right now that feels like it is on the needle's edge that you are super excited about? It's so tough because I feel like we're in such an interesting space in terms of some major paradigm shifts happening in the world of social. Something as a whole that I'm intrigued about, which I know we're going to get into a little bit deeper with some of our topics of today, but thinking about the way that features on a platform, specifically in terms of how they're monetized, is going to affect like the overall user experience. Whereas features you kind of pay a premium for, it was always kind of an extra bonus. And now it's leading into things like basic privacy features, user safety, and that kind of thing. And I think that'll have some really broad implications. Amazing. And then on a more broad level, like what are you listening to right now? Funny, I take pride in having just really non-developed basic taste, basically in terms of everything pop culture. I love whatever new thing like Drake's put out or whatever HBO's pushing to me. It's funny, I've not been watching The Last of Us. I've been debating getting on that train shortly. But I think also too, for me, when I'm entering, whether it's like work super hectic or just life's really busy, I kind of revert for content consumption to like whatever the YouTube algorithm serves me. I love cringe compilations or just things that are completely mindless and there's no plot required. Mindless is the thing to do. I can't speak highly of it anymore. Mindless is the way to go. All right, and Ari, how about you? How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. What is your mindless guilty pleasure? My mindless guilty pleasure? I didn't want to sound so like predictable, but it has to be scrolling through TikTok. I feel like I've constantly done the deep dive of going into the comment section and then clicking on the search bar and finding myself on weird sides of the internet, like biscuit talk, which I won't elaborate on. Please don't. That just sounds, I'll just let the the listener do what they need to do to figure that out. All right. Well, I'm Joey Scarillo. And for me, my mindless activity these days is diving deep into Marvel MCU culture and just watching the folks on YouTube explain it all to me so that I don't have to do any thinking myself. All right. Let's get into the five things. First up, Ari explains Meta Verified for Instagram and Facebook, a new paid verification subscription attempting to increase authenticity and security across Meta services. Then Kendall breaks down how Twitter will limit two-factor authentication. Then Ari will talk about how YouTube is testing podcast features. And then Kendall sticks with audio as Spotify launches AI DJs, an audio platform with personalized music alongside AI-powered commentary. And finally, getting back to what we were teasing a little bit at the top of the show, Kendall explains how CoreCore climbs the aesthetic ranks. Is it meta-commentary or is it radical art? We will break all that down for you. But first, let's get into meta. Ari, tell us about meta-verified. For those that may not know, 
Meta Verified's a new subscription bundle that includes account verification with impersonation protection and access to increased visibility and support. Right now, it's only available for purchase in Australia and New Zealand since we're in the very early stages. And if you were wondering, it retails for $11.99 on the web and $14.99 in apps. So there are two different tiers of how accessible this can be to you. And while it may seem like a coffee cut of Twitter's Twitter Blue product, it may also be a part of a wider industry trend as consumer attention isn't necessarily as valuable as these platforms once were or like as these platforms once held them to be. With weaker advertising markets and Apple's new privacy restrictions that make it a little harder to track user data. And of course, the perpetual threat of government regulation on big tech, as we've been seeing. It's been harder for social apps to kind of monetize. And we're seeing, especially with this rollout from Meta, arguably one of the largest social platforms in the world, kind of this solidification of social platforms pushing toward a pay-to-play model. In recent years, we've seen platforms like Snap and YouTube and Discord kind of add premium options, but of course, holding on to that basic sense of what their apps were. And now with Meta, like we're sealing our fate more of walking into this idea that we're ending free social media, which will be interesting to see, I think. But while these subscriptions may make more money for Instagram and Facebook on the short term, it could also jeopardize their standing with users who already don't trust the platform and don't want to see continued promoted content. I mean, we've seen in recent years, people are tired of Instagram kind of just pushing influencer content and pushing brand content and them not seeing their friends post about their wedding. But while Meta Verified still in the early, very early stages, I'm curious to see how it develops. And me personally, no one's trying to impersonate me. And I honestly am at the point where I don't care if I'm viewed by thousands and thousands of people on the internet. So it's probably something that I and a lot of regular schmegular folks will probably sit out on. I love being regular schmegular. <laughs> I have two questions, Kendall. Yeah. One is kind of micro and then the other one gets back into the macro. So I'm curious on the micro level, what do you think this could mean for the current verification on, let's say, Instagram, the blue check mark, the one that lets you know that this is the person who they say they are? What might this mean for that? And then on the macro level, do you think this will catch on compared to Twitter blue? Starting off with the first question, so I think the most interesting part of this, which is resulting from platforms just needing to find new ways to monetize, even though they all said for a decade, this will always be free, this will be whatever. I think we're facing some realities of, of having to build on that. So I think the main effect that's happening, we're basically redefining what verification means. I feel like this is totally transforming the purpose. I think we've already seen some evidence of that on Twitter Blue. So kind of answering your question too, when we look at people that have had like legacy blue check, so whether that's models on Instagram, whether it's journalists on Twitter. So I think they're initially the hardest hit by this because you don't want to say it cheapens, but like it kind of does. That This is suddenly available to everyone, any anonymous account with four followers. It's like that used to have just with the blue check on any platform came credibility, probably amplification within the algorithm. I'm a, an extremely active Twitter user. And when you got a notification from a reply with someone with a blue check, like that inherently means something. And it's interesting to see what that does when suddenly there's not this kind of implied like social hierarchy, just like granted by the platform to people there. So I think it has a chance to benefit. Like if you suck at social, you'll suck at social and it's not going to do anything. Kind of mid-tier users, maybe you're like really consistent. You create good content for whatever. I think this could be like your chance to shine because kind of the nepotism of the blue check 
might not be as much in play in the future. As we've seen with social as a whole, like this tends to be like a pretty downstream effect. I think there's something intimidating about doing like being the first mover on something as controversial as paying for like a major feature or whatever. But I think kind of once that first domino falls, it becomes pretty standard. I I think people also raise some interesting questions in terms of like, there's honestly not been as much major social development as you would think in terms of new apps since like 2008. It's funny that Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, were like all of these things were created in like 2008, basically. And it's weird that TikTok's been an anomaly, but you get my point. There's not been constant. So I think it was funny when a lot of the Twitter drama first started with Elon. There's a lot of conversation about people quitting the platform, going to whatever. There's this really interesting question that is, where would people go if they don't want to do it? There truly isn't that many options. If you're a brand, there's not many options. There's a little bit of an effect here. Twitter's been moving very quickly with just like the ship things and move fast and break things kind of model and testing and kind of building as they go. But I definitely think once this ball is rolling, I assume this will become mainstream across all platforms, meta, Instagram. I think it'll be kind of the way of the future, whereas verification no longer means you're a famous person it means like this is who you are and you're kind of just paying for what may be unnecessary security. All very interesting. Ari, any other thoughts on this? Kendall, what you said just reminded me of Tinder's gold check. Mm -hmm. This feels like we're walking into this idea of everyone being like, oh, you have a blue check mark. So you obviously pay $11.99, $14.99 a month just for this blue check mark, especially among young people who may or may not have that kind of additional money to spend. It'll either be like, oh, that's embarrassing for you. Or it'll turn into one of those things where it's like, this person's got money, like they can spend this kind of money on that. Like we've seen, we're heading towards a recession at some point, who knows? And it'll be curious. For sure. I think the cringe component is interesting because I do think we already saw a little bit of that on Twitter. It was embarrassing because all of a sudden, like you couldn't turn that off. Like if you paid for that first wave of Twitter blue, people were like, oh, gross, you paid $9 for this. It's a little try hard or something, which like isn't cool. But as somebody who will not pay for any of these platforms. I hope it stays cringy. So that way I could stay on the good side of history here. All right. Sticking with the idea of Twitter and what they're up to. Kendall, tell us about how Twitter is limiting the two-factor authentication with these new updates to Twitter Blue. First, I'll explain what two-factor. So what two-factor authentication was, and specifically this is in regards to SMS, so text messages. So from what I understand, the two-factor authentication via text isn't understood and necessarily be the safest, but it's by far the most widely available. Doesn't require a high degree of tech savviness. You don't need a third-party app. Your password protected when you log in or the platform's detected odd user behavior or something. It, it requires you to answer via a link sent to your text to log in. So that's kind of always been a thing. I think it's important to note that that's never been like a requirement, right? So that, that was never something that was imperative to using the platform, but it was kind of something that everyone just understood as being a nice feature. And this is kind of a groundbreaking thing to go. Once again, paying these extra features isn't about clout or being able to change the color of something on your platform. It's literally about, oh, like, do you want to protect yourself from being hacked? So I think it's kind of in general in marketing, I'm kind of a believer always in just like the the losses loom larger than gains kind of thing. So kind of pivoting, like how you think about social features, whereas like, no, this isn't about what the bonus will be to you. It's about like how this won't hurt you, whether that means someone hacking into your platforms and access to your photos, private things, whatever. So I just think that's a really interesting part of the conversation. I think on the extreme side, people are literally like, oh, this will, this is disgusting. There'll be a class action lawsuit when a bunch of people get hacked. I don't really know. I don't feel qualified to speak to that. But I do think 
it's a really interesting question. I think this will way majorly affect less tech savvy people, older people. And I think that's where there could be some concern in terms of like the hacking type things. Because once again, if you're a fairly savvy person, you can use an authenticator app, a third party thing. It's not a big deal. But maybe people who require little extra protection, this could be a bit of a concern. And now it's going to be required that you pay for that with Twitter Blue. So Ari, this kind of feels to me like the opposite experience of buying a car. I love a good metaphor, right? So when I buy a car, I may not want to buy all the bells and whistles, right? I don't necessarily need the heated seats. I don't necessarily need the automatic start, but I do expect airbags, sensors, rear camera, things that are going to keep me safe. Do you think Twitter is kind of going in the opposite direction here? And could it potentially be bad for business to have people have to pay for these safety features? Are consumers going to want to pay extra for online safety? Joey, I've never bought a car in my entire life. But I think I understand the metaphor. And to your point, yeah, I think it's a very difficult thing for Twitter to expect people to want to have to pay for just essentially being on the app and being on the app safely. I will say... Me personally, I don't have two-step authentication on my Twitter. That does not mean hack me, please. But it does mean you can have a protected enough password that'll be harder for lazy hackers to hack you. Very interesting. Definitely something we will keep an eye on. Okay, let's move on to our third thing. These next two things both talk about audio, so I'm really excited to get into it. But Ari, explain to us how YouTube is testing podcast features and how the platform is developing more podcast tools to align with growing audio usage. Yeah, definitely. YouTube quietly launched its latest feature experiment, I believe on February 15th, with an aim at testing out new tools for podcasts. Um, So creators who are a part of this experiment are able to view all of their podcasts in the content menu under a new podcast tab, and then mark existing playlists as podcasts. They're also testing podcast analytics, which are a little bit different from their regular video analytics, where you'll be able to see on that tab the performance, audience, and revenue insights for each podcast, which is entirely different from your video uploads. So it makes those numbers a little more easy to track in podcasts specifically. With more popular YouTubers also running their own podcasts, similarly to Emma Chamberlain or H3H3, all of these really big Gen Z brands, it makes sense for YouTube to kind of expand and provide a more comprehensive media offering to this kind of talent. They'll be able to kind of upload their regular like video content alongside their secondary streams of income with podcasting and kind kind of honing all of that into one space. It could potentially prove to be a great avenue, especially for businesses that are also looking to start or already have accompanying podcasts on other platforms to kind of streamline that as well. And who knows, like maybe five things will also jump on board to the YouTube podcast train as well. We'll see. But it's curious. And I think it has a lot of potential knowing that that is a place where people go for content and knowing that the media intake also includes podcasting content. If you're down with doing this podcast on YouTube, I am too. All right, Kendall, from a creator point of view, what does YouTube need to do to get this right? What's going to drive creators to want to put their podcasts on the platform? 
Yeah. So as a whole, I think it's interesting kind of in the last couple of years, you, you feel this need of like every social platform feeling this need to be like, like everything everywhere all at once. Like you can see that just in terms of strategically the constant updates, you can tell like immediately like be real, we'll have a feature. And then everyone's like, oh, we have to do that. Instagram was scared by like popularity of short term video. And, and now we see that with like YouTube shorts. So once again, it's not like the options are endless, but it is like a crowded space for what it is. Right. And everyone's fighting for this creator dollar. And as creators have often surpassed brands pretty quickly in terms of following with this sort of content, like it can go from zero to 100 really quick. I think for YouTube, I feel like primarily consume podcasts via YouTube. I think at the end of the day, it's all about like how meeting creators where they are. This is kind of like more of a content moderation kind of thing. But I feel like YouTube has historically had like a little bit more conservative standards between like what people are allowed to say on the platform relative to what you can do elsewhere. If you just want to do like Sirius XM or like whatever your your angle is. And I know that's resulted in a lot of creators taking their talents elsewhere to Patreon or place where they have a little bit more creative freedom. So I think that'll be a big question in terms of I just think specifically the type of entertainers that tend to go into podcasting really value kind of that creative autonomy and ability to do that. And I don't think they'll be inclined to stick with YouTube very long if that's not the case and they can't do what they want. I think it's funny too, just talking about YouTube's always been like such a visual first platform recently, like YouTube music and that kind of thing has taken off. But it's always been a place where it was almost required to have like the visual and aesthetic component. So yeah, I think... It's important that they take notes from companies like Spotify and places that have been doing kind of the audio game a little bit longer and just kind of making the user experience and what's in it for the creators just like worth everyone's time. Yeah, very interesting. And I always like to think about how the creators will be impacted by these changes to the platform. Okay, you mentioned Spotify, not me. So now we can move on to Spotify. Kendall, tell us about how Spotify is launching AI DJs. I feel like AI is the hot topic. If there's like a main character of each month on these kind of themes, I feel like that's all my Twitter has been lately of both advertising people and tech nerds. So obviously, it's a matter of time for socials to start jumping in. So yeah, Spotify is launching an AI DJ. They're defining that as it being a subsect of the platform that's rolling out personalized music alongside AI-powered commentary. I think it's funny that Spotify really went out of their way to note that the DJ voice is like stunningly realistic. So that sounds a little scary to me in like kind of a fun way. It's getting into kind of like her territory and this sounds like a DJ is talking to you. Kind of the point of this and the way they're thinking about it is this is this to be like more of a passive music listening experience. So whether you're in the middle of a work day or you're on a workout and you don't feel like searching every song or even like curating a playlist, kind of the whole appeal of AI, right, is this kind of like ongoing customization that gets better over time on any platform. And it just kind of takes less and the less like mental work off your plate for like bringing you the content that you want. So yeah, it's going to deliver like a curated selection of music and like the AI is going to like give commentary about the tracks and artists you like and kind of offer commentary and questions to so that it can keep building. What the main takeaway is Spotify is historically kind of known as being kind of a first mover in like the customization space. We see things like Spotify rap. I think it tends to be ahead of the other music platforms in this kind of way. So I think them being a mover in this AI space of this DJ situation feels really on brand for them and a nice pairing. And I think in general, what brands can kind of take away from most consumer brands probably shouldn't be first movers on AI. We saw a little bit of that with the metaverse. And I think there's nothing wrong with kind of seeing how larger platforms first start integrating this. You can make good decisions later about what that means for you. But I think this just supports the fact that like customization and personalization to consumers is only going to continue to get more important. And it'll become something people just expect from everything. So just kind of looking into like what these developing habits mean for your brand. Yeah, it's all very interesting. Ari, I know you've 
you don't own a car or you at least never bought one. But a couple of years ago, Spotify put out a thing called Spotify Drive, which sounds a little bit like this. This, of course, has the AI component to it. I'm curious, do you find this new feature? Is this going to be cool? Is this going to catch on? Are you would you personally participate or does the whole thing just kind of creep you out? I think it'll definitely help set them apart from a lot of their competitors who have kind of copy pasted the essence of Spotify. I mean, as we've seen, like Apple has copied their yearly raft, which was kind of the big thing that everyone went to Spotify for. So I definitely think this helps kind of push the envelope in terms of like audio streaming platforms and what they offer. Oh, and I would absolutely listen to this. I'm excited to see how it rolls out. But this idea of provided songs plus commentary on said song or said artist brings me back to my my days of being an intern at a radio station and kind of my love for radio as a whole and knowing that there's a personalization there that also feels personable will be really incredible to see if it sticks one and if it lands primarily. But this is just the start of a bunch of Spotify redesign rumors. So it'll be interesting to see what Spotify looks like either at the end of the year or at the start of 2024. It may not be the same app as we know it today. Only time will tell. I love that tease out of where Spotify could go. Okay, now we're going to talk about something that I fully admit I have no idea anything about. I'm going to say words and you're going to make sense of them. Kendall, core core, the new video format that is climbing in the aesthetic ranks. Please explain it to me, explain it to our listeners, make it all make sense. Absolutely. So in terms of these kind of like creative trend conversations, I think sometimes they can like sound really silly on the surface, but I think they tend to be like pretty indicative of broader like real cultural things and movements that are happening. So core core, I'm sure we're all familiar with, I think specifically Gen Z has kind of enjoyed like the core aesthetic. So just like labeling something Cottage core. That's like the girls that wear the long dresses. You basically take any like cultural niche and put core and that's just like your overall aesthetic. It's almost like a way you live your life kind of followed by by these aesthetic guidelines. So first of all, I do think it's interesting whenever these sort of things come up, there's always just like debate about like whether it counts as art or whether it's like shit posting or whatever. And I don't really think that's that interesting of a conversation. Like I never feel the need to like label that and don't really know why we care because I feel like the whole point of this kind of thing is it's kind of meta and self-critical and ironic. So the core core trend that we're seeing on TikTok, basically what it looks like in the platform. So it's a video. It tends to have like one overall theme. So and I feel like it tends to be kind of heavy, like social issue type things, capitalism kind of things the reality of dating, just kind of some like tougher things. And it breaks them down into video. It's a bunch of spliced together images and shorter videos. So it's a mix of memes and other TikToks and other clips of videos all spliced together in this sort of video collage that kind of tells this larger story via these sometimes really dark, sometimes funny kind of moments. And there's often like a soundtrack to the back of it. So I think... These kind of moments are interesting. I think people, when you watch them, they can feel kind of dark or depressing because it's kind of this like nihilistic, ironic, haha thing, but it's talking about things that are kind of serious. I think it's kind of a commentary too and what it means for like social and content that like just the ever limited attention span, like five years ago, it was six seconds. Now it's like two. And I think it's funny as you see more and more of these sorts of formats where it's like, yeah, like it's hard to sit through like a one minute TikTok now or commit to like a movie because it's like not even 
Yeah, not even even within one TikTok, there's like 40 things happening. There was like a big article in tech a couple of weeks ago. Have you guys seen the format where it was like to get around like copyright usage laws? There's like on TikTok, you'll see a split screen and on one half, it'll play like a full episode of South Park or like Family Guy or whatever. And on the other side, it's like visual ASMR. It's kind of upsetting, like at a visceral level. But like, I find myself watching those all the time. And you're literally like not even watching, like you're watching two completely unrelated things happening at the same point in time. And I just think as we keep moving further and further in those sort of directions and just like the ever splicing and the ever need to like micro label things, I think is interesting. And I think it will affect how brands need to think about social. Like everyone knows the first shot needs to be like really eye captioning or you have to get your call to action across in the first millisecond. I don't necessarily think it's a good thing, but I do think that's kind of the reality of what we're seeing with these kind of movements. Ari, do you think brands will get on board with this aesthetic? Honestly, I don't think brands have a place in core core. They totally don't. Yeah, that would be funny to try though. (laughs) And I don't think a brand ever wants to be a part of a core core aesthetic unless we get to the point where core core is essentially imploding in on itself and it turns into this hyper meme of a meme of a meme instead of this idea of where some people come from in terms of core core is like a weird meme about society but at the same time like when you look at certain core core videos kind of gives you that visceral reaction similarly to any major art movement when you look at it Pollock you're like I don't know what going on here, but like it hurts a little somewhere if you look at it long enough. And I think some core core videos kind of attempt to or at least allude to that feeling of being like, yeah, there's something happening in the world that I am like worried about that I see in this video because we're looking at an overarching trend, whether that be a social, political or economic trend and kind of like, I don't know what to do about it, but I'm going to sit with these feelings on the internet for at least the time that this video plays and then I'm going to move on with my life. But it's an interesting aesthetic. I haven't seen it on my For You page in a hot minute and I'm honestly a little happy about it because it does put me in a weird headspace and I don't think brands want to align with that weird headspace. I get that. I get that. That was a good explanation. Kendall, I'll give you the last word on this. If core core is the epitome of the core culture, where does it go? I probably don't think it'll go anywhere. I think there's just such an oversaturation. At, at a previous, my previous role, I was a little more fashion adjacent and there was kind of in like upcoming trend reports, it was all about the death of the micro trend. Part of that is the nature of fast fashion. And there's just constant fatigue from like skinny jeans have like come and gone like three times in the last six months. It's not sustainable. And like no one wants to do that. And I think we'll see that with online trends too, which is why I think it's imperative that brands just don't feel the need to hop on something just for the sake of it. I, I believe in being like really intentional with that sort of content. And talking about like what whether brands should jump on this kind of thing. It's funny, I had a friend that was like a really major creator in like the meme space and probably like peak Facebook era. And they always talk in these like meme Reddit creator communities about how important brands and memes play in the role of like the meme life cycle. I think it was funny, like specifically, they always talked about Denny's. They were like the second Denny's used a meme for the first time, like that was the mark that the meme was dead. And they're like, it was absolutely crucial that we had this button. So it's like the second Wendy's makes a tweet about it to the actual group of people that created it, that is the death of it, which is fine. It's like part of it. But I think that's something that tends to happen with these sort of things. I love the cyclical nature of the internet. It's just so, it's so good. All right, well, me and my skinny jeans are going to land this plane and we are going to wrap up this podcast today. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, write to us with your questions, comments, concerns. 
points of interest or complaints, or if you just want to send us a thing for us to discuss on the show, you can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. Of course, I want to thank our panel today, Ari and Kendall. Please join us again. Let's make it a thing. And as always, I want to thank Samantha Geller, Amanda Fuentes, and the crew over at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes. And finally, thank you, listener. And as always, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York, produced by Joey Scarillo and Samantha Geller. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Amanda Fuentes and Guy Rosemarin, with post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by Christina Hyde and Adrian Hopkins. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com. <laughs>